my chickens are still with us. They were actually supposed to be returned to Matt and Rifki Manis, from whom we uh, borrowed them. Unfortunately, Mrs. Manis' father passed away, and she is currently in Shiva, so we have the chickens a little bit longer. The Niftar, the Niftar loved Torah, learning Torah. He would love learning with Matt whenever they were together. Loved doing mitzvahs, helping others do mitzvahs. Mrs. Manis tells a charming story of his lighting a menorah in Heathrow Airport and actually being Mazaka, another young fellow who was impressed by his pluck in negotiating with the airport security to let him leave his menorah lit. Loved people, loved being Machnes Arech. Didn't particularly love animals, and we will not be discussing animals tonight. We will be moving on to other topics. In any event, may our learning be, our learning is dedicated tonight to uh, Shlomo Reuven ben Benyamin. May, uh, may his neshama have an aliyah. Yehi zichro baruch. The topic we're going to be discussing tonight is one that involves more historical background than usual. The Shuvah will be studying tonight in the Sefer Nachle Yoshua of Rabbi Yoshua Sansino, almost 500 years ago, deals with one of the most fascinating and dramatic episodes of 16th century Jewish history, and that is the tragedy at Ancona and its aftermath. The story is roughly as follows. The Catholic Church had an inquisition, had been doing terrible things in Spain and Portugal, the expulsion, of course, from Spain eventually, and the church had compelled people to, to uh, adopt Christianity, to shmad, as we would call it, in Spain and Portugal. Now, various of these conversos, these anusim, had eventually left Portugal, left the church behind, and they had taken the opportunity to start again and go back to being Jews. Some of these previous conversos had settled in the Italian city of Ancona. Back then, of course, Italy was not unified. Italy was a bunch of, this is Renaissance Italy we're talking about. Italy wasn't unified until centuries later. At, that, at the time, Italy was a bunch of independent city-states, some of them quite famous. We, we talk of cities like Venice and Florence. And there were other states, there were other cities that were independently controlled. Ancona, one of the papal states at the time, controlled by the Pope, the Church. Some of these uh, Anusim from Portugal had decided to start life anew in Ancona. Uh, a somewhat dubious decision, particularly in hindsight, out of the frying pan into the fire. Uh, as we'll see, Rabbi Yeshua Sansino was actually quite critical of their decision to do that, but they had, been, they had been given assurances, apparently, by the Pope at the time that they could settle there and return to being Jews. The Pope had acknowledged that their conversions, their forced conversions in Portugal had been unfair and illegitimate, and he had allowed them to settle and to revert to Judaism. The problem was, a couple of Popes later, a couple of Popes down the line, we had a real fanatic, Pope uh, Paul IV. This fellow was a tyrant, besides, as we're about to see, besides, uh, besides murdering, uh, murdering many Jews, he was, apparently a, uh, he was apparently a nasty, as Wikipedia puts it, rigidly orthodox, austere in life, authoritarian in manner. Among the other actions he took when he became Pope was that he cut off the pension of Michelangelo, and he decided that the 
paintings in the Sistine Chapel were not so uh, tsenua, and they had to be painted over. Michelangelo ignored him. This is actually something we might have agreed with if we were there, but anyway, these things pale in, uh, in, in, pale in comparison to the atrocities he committed against the Jews. He began to crack down on the Jews. He reneged on the promises the Jews had been given by previous popes that they could settle and be Jews again. He persecuted them, culminating in the murder of 25, 24, or 25 Jews in Ancona, seized much of their property, but he bur- they burned and hanged 24, about, a, about 24 or 25 Jews. Terrible tragedy for Sephardic Jewry. It's apparently still mentioned in Kinos on Tisha B'Av today. And that was the, the catastrophe that occurred in Ancona. As a consequence, Jews, Sephardic Jews, all across the Mediterranean were furious. They were furious at the, at the way their brethren had been treated. And there was a movement to implement a boycott, a, a trade boycott against Ancona. Svardim, as we see from the halakhic literature of the time, were an extremely powerful and lucrative uh, trading empire across the Mediterranean, from southern Europe, Turkey, the Middle East, the Near East, northern Africa. The, the, the Svardim had, uh, did tremendous business in trade across the, uh, all across Europe and Africa, and there was, a, there was a strong push to boycott Ancona, to punish the Pope, to punish the, the city of Ancona for its egregious, outrageous behavior toward the Jews in Ancona. This movement was spearheaded by two famous, today I guess we'd call them Askanim, two famous lay leaders of Svardik Jewry at the time, the celebrated Dana Gracia Nasi woman and her son-in-law, Don Yosef Nasi. They were the ones who pushed for this boycott. And of course, the, the, matter, the matter was brought to the Rabbanim, the Gedele Torah at the time, to rule, to pass judgment on whether such a boycott was legitimate. The boycott actually received a fair amount of rabbinic support. Rabbi Yosef Ibn Lev, who, was, uh, who actually counted Dana Gracia apparently as a patroness of his, supported the boycott. But at least initially, there was one noteworthy opponent of the boycott, and that was a somewhat lesser known today, but nevertheless uh, out, outstanding uh, Gadol Batar of his time, Rabbi Yeshua Sansino. Sansino, of course, is an Italian name. He had a family had originally come from Italy. He himself, apparently, a branch of the family had settled in Turkey, but he was one of the leading Gadol Torah of the Sfardim of the time. And he, at least initially, opposed the boycott. There is some controversy about how his position evolved or changed, but in the tshuva, we're going to focus on one of his chuvas tonight. There's an even longer one, which we're not going to do, we're not going to have time for, but I didn't have time to prepare, we're not going to have time to do. We're going to focus on Simon Lamentes in his Sefer, Nachal Yoshua, his initial tshuva on the legitimacy of the boycott. And as we've said... Uh, he was actually against the boycott. He felt the boycott should not be done. We'll go through his analysis. His analysis is fascinating in, in terms of the historical context, in terms of his halakhic approach. And uh, ultimately, as we'll see, his tshuva hinges very much on the factual questions of what would the likely effects of this boycott be, what would the effects of the boycott be, as opposed to what would the effects of not doing a boycott be. And his tshuva, his, his, his position really rests very much on the facts. There is a substantial amount of halakhic analysis as well, but the tshuva really rises and falls 
on his interpretation of the facts. So, without further ado, let's begin his tshuva. He, he discusses, in the, in, in the beginning, he discusses the, the case, the facts, as he understood them, and then he gets into the halachic analysis. So, she'ela, shliach shulach mi pazaro. An emissary has arrived from Pizarro. That, the city of Pizarro was another Italian city-state. That was a city of refuge for the Plate Ancona, for the refugees of Ancona, who had been driven out and had fled the, the wrath of the Pope, the, the port, originally the Portuguese Jews, who had been forced to flee Ancona. A couple of dozen of their brethren had been burned, but they escaped, and they eventually made their way to Pizarro. They were very grateful to the Duke of Pizarro for allowing them in, what he calls Haduki di Urbino, the Duke of, of Urbino, an Italian dynastic ruler who, uh, who ruled some of that area, including Pizarro. They were very grateful to the Duke for allowing them in. As I was explaining to Simcha, we take for granted today, we move where we want, we go where we want. It wasn't like that. For a Jew to enter a city, a state, he had to get permission from the king, which was more often than not denied. So they were quite grateful to the Duke for allowing them in. The Duke himself may not have been, as we'll see throughout the tshuva, may not have been acting out of motives of altruism and brotherly love and uh, humanism. He may have had his eye on the valuable Svardic trade. As we'll see, that was a crucial factor in Rabbi Sancino's analysis. But whatever the reason, enlightened self-interest, greed, actual sympathy for the Jews, the Duke of Urbino had allowed the Jews to settle in Pizarro. At, this was all at the time, he says, when they saw at, at the time of the, the infamous Tzaras Achenu, the, the tragedy of our brethren who were burned, Al-Kidusha Sashem Yisparach, burned by the church, Ordo Dafes, that uh, burned Al-Kidusha Sashem. And this emissary of the Jews in Pizarro, the, the refugees from Ancona, were requesting on behalf of, uh, of the other Jews in Pizarro that we should enact this boycott, B'chalt Futsus Yisrael, throughout the dispersion of Israel, meaning really, uh, I think, Sephardic, Mediterranean Jewry, that they should not do any further trade with Ancona. Anyone who wants to trade in that corner of the world, in that part of the map, they should come to Pizarro, the city of the Duke of Urbino. Why, would, why do they want this? Why do the Jews of Pizarro want this? The benefits of this, in their view, would be twofold. First, revenge. Revenge for the spilled blood of our brethren who had been spilled in the Ir Lomotuhara in that uh, unholy place, Ancona. So first of all, revenge against the church, revenge against the authorities in Ancona. Second, that the Jews, the Jews are secure currently in Pizarro because the Duke has his eye on the trade, on the, on the Sephardic trade. He's hoping that with Jews settling in his city, They'll bring with them the lucrative trade. He says, however, if we don't enact this, uh, this boycott of Ancona, and if the trade continues to take place in Ancona, and we don't get the anticipated, sh- the anticipated increase in trade, the Duke will be quite upset. And he may take it out on us. He may, uh, his uh, his mag- magnanimity may turn into fury. And... Uh, you know, Dukes back then, certainly, in Renaissance Italy, were notoriously changeable. They were mercurial, certainly, and uh, certainly were not known for their uh, benevolence and, uh, and uh, you know, man's uh, and brotherly love, necessarily. If it was against their self-interest, they could be quite upset, and they would be furious. Furthermore, he says, the Jews of Pizarro said, 
the Duca, the Duca of Urbino, who had allowed the Jews to settle in Pizarro, they had anticipated this boycott. They had heard rumors of the boycott, and they were counting on it. They, uh, the Duke, when he let them settle in Pizarro, he was already taking into account that there would be this boycott, and he would get a big uptick in trade. And if they don't do that, he will be quite upset. You, know, you, don't, you don't play games with kings and potentates, and if we don't, uh, if we don't get channeled toward him the trade that he wants, who knows what the, what the outcome will be. So they argued in Pizarro that we need to do this boycott for two reasons. First of all, as a matter of principle, to revenge ourselves against the church, the authorities in Ancona, and second, to ensure that the Duke of Urbino, the, the Duke of Pizarro, gets the trade that he wants by rechanneling, redirecting it away from Ancona toward Pizarro, because if he does not, he will be quite upset with us and we may, we may uh, be in mortal peril. That was the argument of the Jews in Pizarro. The Jews in Ancona, the Jews who had, were still in Ancona, they may have been Jews who were not Portuguese conversos, local Italian Jews, but the Jews who had stayed in Ancona and were currently not on the church's hit list, they were very, very concerned about this boycott. They felt this boycott would be, potentially, would have dire consequences for them. They sent letters countering the letter, countering the, the, the advocacy of the Jews in Pizarro. They sent letters warning that this boycott, this potential boycott, could have dire consequences for them, for the Jews who live under Memsheles HaPapa, the kingdom of the Pope. Today, of course, the Pope is uh, not much of a king. He has moral influence. He has, you know, Vatican City. But uh, it was Stalin, I think, who famously asked uh, how many legions does the Pope have. Back then, of course, in Renaissance Italy, there was none of this uh, modern separation of church and state. The Pope, of course, did have legions. The Pope had armies. The Pope was, uh, the Pope was a major player in the, in the great games in Europe. And all the Jews who were under the authority of the Pope in the Papal States, particularly in Ancona, would potentially suffer the repercussions from this boycott. The Pope would be furious. You're worried, about, uh, you're worried about how the Duke will react if we don't do the boycott. Well, we're worried about what will happen if we do do the boycott. The Pope will be furious. Why? Even though we're not doing the boycott, the, the Pope says, you Jews, you're all on the same team, that you're behind this boycott, you're all responsible. And he will be furious. He'll say, you're trifling with me, you're starting up with me, they're making boycotts against me. I know it's your brethren who live in Turkey doing this, but you're all Jews, you're all, you're all in the same uh, global international conspiracy, and, you, and you're the ones, you're starting up with me. All I did was, uh, all I did was piously adhere to my religion. When I was persecuting Jews, I was acting L'Shem Shemayim, the Pope is going to say, that I was just doing my job as the Pope, and now you're fighting with me and boycotting me. I'm going to take this out on you, and I'm going to uh, do terrible things to, uh, to you. So that's what the Jews in Ancona were worried about, that they thought this boycott would be very bad. They would be the ones in grave danger if there was a boycott. What about the concern of the Jews in Pizarro, that if there's no boycott, the Duke will be furious with them? That's the, don't worry about it, they said. The Duke de Urbino, even if you don't make the boycott, and he won't get uh, all this extra trade, he won't do anything, He's very enlightened, Ishchacham Venavon, who he's, uh, he's, 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 he's wise and tolerant, and he knows that it's not their fault that these refugee Jews in Pizarro don't, uh, don't pull the strings of international Jewish policy. And furthermore, he says, he's already very happy about the trade he's getting so far because of the, the refugee Jews in Ancona, 
He's not going to want to rock the boat, he says. He's not going to, even if he'd like more, more trade, he, he's happy with what he has. He's not going to get so upset just because he doesn't have more trade. And that's what, and the, the people of Pizarro who are making these claims that they have to get all the trade, otherwise the Duke will be angry, that's simply a self-interested argument. They have economic interest. They want to get more trade. They're not really, they're not really worried about repercussions from the Duke, he says, that the, they want to just grab everything for themselves. But the whole thing is bogus. So these were the claims and counterclaims of the two factions, the Jews of Ancona and the Jews of Pizarro. The Jews of Ancona said, we cannot have this boycott. The boycott will have terrible repercussions for us. The absence, of, the absence of the boycott will not cause any harm to the Jews of Pizarro. And the Jews of Pizarro said just the opposite. As we'll see as we go through the tshuva, the Jews of Pizarro said, no, on the contrary, the absence of the boycott may have terrible repercussions for us. The Duke is counting on the boycott, and he'll be furious with us if he doesn't get it, if he doesn't get all the trade. And, uh, and as we'll see later, they said, the Pope is not going to do anything to you. The Pope doesn't really care. The Pope is not going to consider it a big deal if Ancona gets boycotted. So each side argued that, that uh, if, if their policy was not followed, they stood to suffer grave harm. And the other side's concerns, they each one poo-pooed and said they're exaggerating, they're, 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 they're making claims out of self-interest, and they aren't really true. So each one claimed that the policy had to go his way, because if it didn't, he would be in grave, he would be in grave peril, and the other side's concerns he dismissed. And both sides uh, made these claims against the others. So now they asked the Rabbi Shua Sancino, along with other Gedoli uh, Asfardim who were involved, they asked Rabbi Shua Sancino, so what's the halacha? Three possibilities. Is this, are we mechuyiv to make this boycott? Is there an isser in making the boycott? Or is it morally neutral? Rishos Nesuna. Any, any, any city can do whatever it wants. It can join, it can not join. So is this Chayev, is this Asr, or is this a matter of Rishus? Please tell us, what is the halacha about this boycott? This is how the, the question was initially posed to Rabbi Yeshua Sancino. This is how he reports the question that was posed to him. So he says, he doesn't keep you in suspense, the very first line of his tshuva. Ivra, he says, it is extremely self-evident, more so than the basic halacha of eggs and milk, which is a halacha everyone knows. You're allowed to have a cheese omelet. It's the, it's the jargon for Talmudic jargon for uh, for uh, the quintessentially uh, obvious, self-evident halacha. This boycott is prohibited. This boycott may not be instituted. No one Jewish may participate in this boycott. In order to explain this, I'm going to write the rest of the tshuva. So, the structure of his tshuva is as follows. He first logically dissects the possibilities, given the uncertainties involved, into four possibilities. He says, there are two, prop- there are two propositions whose truth is debated. One proposition, implementing the boycott will cause harm to Ancona. People in Ancona say yes, people in Pizarro say no. Second proposition, not implementing the boycott will cause harm to Jews of Pizarro. Jews of Pizarro say yes, Jews of Ancona say no. So there are two independent propositions whose truth is being debated by the two opposing factions. Since these propositions are independent, there are logically four possibilities. Both propositions are true. Both propositions are false. One proposition is true, and the second is false. The second proposition is true, and the first is false. So Rabbi Yeshua Sancino says, logically enough, we can divide the, the four possible scenarios in terms of uncertain facts into, we can divide them into four separate uh, possibilities. So what we're going to do is, he says, we're going to analyze separately under each of these four possible scenarios, 
there is harm, there is potential harm to both Pizarro and Ancona. No one's really at risk. Pizarro is at risk, Ancona is not at risk, Ancona is at risk, Pizarro is not at risk. Under each of these four scenarios, we're going to analyze what should the halacha be about this boycott, and then we'll put it all together and decide, given that we don't actually know which scenario is the correct one, after we've decided what the halacha would be in each of these four scenarios, then we'll decide what the halacha is, given that we're not actually certain which of these four scenarios is correct. So, first he carefully enumerates the, the four scenarios. Number one, that maybe both sides are telling the truth, that each one of them is correct, that if their, pol- if their preferred policy is not implemented, they will suffer harm. Scenario number two, both sides are exaggerating or lying. No one's in any danger. The Duke is not going to get upset. The Pope is not going to get upset. He's not going to take this personally. He's not, even though the whole point of the boycott was to, uh, was to hit the Pope where it, uh, where it hurt. But uh, all right, the Pope, the Pope is not going to get to, he's going to brush it off. He's, uh, he doesn't care about this kind of thing. Third possibility, Pizarro are telling the truth. They're going to be in grave danger if the boycott is not passed. And Kona are making things up. The Pope is not really going to care. Fourth possibility, maybe Ancona is telling the truth. The Pope will get upset if, the, if, if, if trade is diverted from Ancona. And Pizarro is not telling the truth, that the Duke will be okay with the, with the limited trade that he's getting from the, the Portuguese trade, and he won't be as we would say, he won't cut off his nose to spite his face by, punish, by punishing the remaining Jews who are there. He'll accept what he has, and uh, as uh, half a loaf is better than none. These are the four possibilities. Logically, he says, There is no other logical possibility other than these four. But we don't know, he says. At the end of the day, we, we don't have a crystal ball. We don't have Nevuar, the Urm Batumim. We can't actually say for sure which of these scenarios will come to pass, which won't. Therefore, he says, we're going to analyze what the halacha should be in each of these four scenarios, and then we'll decide the final halacha, given the, the uncertainty, what we should rule about the boycott. So, first he considers the fourth halukha. And Kona is telling the truth that the boycott will hurt them, and Pizarro is not telling the truth, or making a mistake, that the absence of the boycott will not hurt them. What's Allah in such a case, he says, that is a no-brainer. That's self-evident. People in Ancona are in, are in mortal danger. People in Pizarro are not. The boycott then clearly should not be, uh, be implemented. There's no reason to put people in Ancona in danger. Pizarro is not in danger either way. That goes without saying. That is classic Pikuach Nefesh. He invokes the famous dictum of Chazal, Someone who even bothers to ask such a question is, 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 is guilty of murder because the person might die well, while he's busy asking questions that should be obvious. The Nishal, the person who's asked the question, is, uh, is disparaged. The Farshim say he should have taught people halachas like this. They shouldn't be asking these questions. So if the facts are that Ancona is in grave danger and Pizarro is not, then it goes without saying, he says, that the boycott is inappropriate and should not be implemented easy, he says. Now he turns to scenario number one. He says, even, in, even if we assume that both sides are telling the truth, that both Ancona and Pizarro are in grave danger if their policy is not enacted, that Pizarro is in serious danger of the Duke's wrath if they don't get the boycott, and Ancona is in serious danger of the Pope's wrath if, they do get, if there is a boycott, what should we do now? 
That's a much tougher question, because now the danger is on both sides. So how do we decide what to do? Says Rabbi Sansino, actually, we do have a halachic rule that tells us what to do in such scenarios. What do you do when there's danger on both sides? It's a Gemara, he says. Very famous Gemara. The Gemara says that even though we can violate most Averis in the Torah to save life, to preserve life, there are three exceptions, one of which is murder. If the only way I can save my life is by taking someone else's life, I am not allowed to do that. How do we know that? What's the source of that? The Gemara says it is a svara. We know that. It's logic. Simple logic tells us that. What's the logic? The Gemara has a famous expression, my chazis to damadidach dilma Who said your blood is redder than his? Maybe his blood is redder than yours. So Simcha asked me, well, what if you're a bigger tzaddik or a bigger Talmud Chacham? Obviously, you might be a little bit uh, of an interested party in making that decision, but what if you get outside confirmation? What if you, you ask somebody, a plea, ask a basin, who's, who's more deserving of life? So we discussed a while back, we discussed all kinds of medical prioritization questions, triage questions, where in the case where nobody's killing anybody, it's just a question of the allocation of scarce resources, we do actually take such things into account in some cases. There are a variety of factors. Melech before Kohen Gadol, Talmud Chacham before everyone. There are actually rules for, for, who, for who gets precedence, and some of them do take into account whose blood is redder than others. There are a variety of criteria that, that we actually do use to say whose blood is redder. Nevertheless, the, the Gemara's point is that when it comes to actively taking a life, we say no, we say sheval tasa. No matter what, how much more you, you're, you might think, society might think, your life is worth, it doesn't matter. When it comes to taking actions to save your life at someone else's expense, we say, my chaz is who said your blood is redder? That is the key holding of this Gemara, as understood by all the poskim. You're not allowed to take active measures to save your life at the expense of somebody else, to actually kill him at least. You can't do that but to save your life. You have no, but that, that's what the Gemara means by this expression, my The general rule, as Rabbi Sansino says, is basically the principle of Sheval Tasa. If you, if you can't, uh, if, if both sides are fraught with danger, both sides, Misafik at least, entail danger to, to someone. So don't take active measures to harm somebody else at, uh, in order to preserve your own life. Says Rabbi Sansino, that principle is decisive in our case as well. He, he, he explains at some, at some length, in, in, by citing various Talmudic passages, he, he gets into a fairly technical discussion of how we define active measures and passive measures when you're dealing with things like boycotts, you're dealing with words, and, uh, but basically he concludes that the active measure of passing a boycott, the active measure of trade flowing to Pizarro and away from Ancona, he considers that a kumvase, an active measure. He says do, taking such action is, is considered a, a masa, an active step that would harm Ancona, leaving the status quo, leaving people with freedom of trade, which means that some merchants will come to Ancona, is the position of sheval tasa, of simply path of least resistance, of not taking any active measures. And he argues, it's debatable, but he argues based on, based on, this, based on this principle of of who said your blood is redder he tells the people of Pizarro who says your blood is redder than the blood of Ancona who says that you have the right to demand to take active measures to, to boycott Ancona which, which, will bring, which may bring harm to Ancona in order to save your life who said your blood is redder than their blood maybe their blood is redder than your blood and therefore don't do anything 
don't do anything that will harm Ancona. So these are the first two halukas. He says, certainly if the harm to Ancona is real and the harm to Pizarro is not, certainly Ancona wins and there's no boycott. Even if the harm to both is real, both of them will potentially suffer harm on the two opposite sides of the boycott. Yes, boycott, harm to Ancona. No boycott, harm to Pizarro. That, that's the Gemara. My chazis, who, who you have no right to decide, your blood is redder. Therefore, sheval tasa adif, don't do the boycott and let things remain as they are, even if that will, may entail some harm to you. Furthermore, he adds another historical detail, he says, this would all be true even if the overall harm the quantified to Ancona is equivalent to the harm to Pizarro. Kolschkin, he says, it's not actually correct. He says the ratio of population, I think he means, is 100 to 1. It's kuf l'gabechad, who are, of those who are under the control of the sovereignty of the Pope, he says, in Ancona and surrounding areas, a hundred times as many, mea keflayim, keneged the platim, shnikletachas memshelas haduki, they have a hundred times as more Jews who potentially stand to suffer the wrath of the Pope than the Portuguese Anconan refugees who are now in, under the Duke de Urbino's territory, he says, so the danger is a hundred times more to Ancona, so once again, if the danger is real on both sides, then again, Ancona wins, we say Maichazis, and certainly we say that, that you, can, you, Pizarro, can't say your blood is redder. Certainly you can't say that if the people in Ancona outnumber you by 100 to 1. So those are the first two Chalukas, not in the order he presented them originally. Those are the first two Chalukas in his conceptual analysis in which he says Ancona wins. If Ancona's right and Pizarro's wrong, certainly Ancona wins. If they're both right, the danger is real on both sides, Ancona wins again. Now we turn to Chaluka number 2 on the initial list where neither side is right. Both sides are exaggerating or lying that there is no actual danger from the Pope, there is no actual danger from the Duke de Urbino. Neither one is going to ruthlessly uh, take out his wrath on the Jews under his, under, under his territory. The, the actual, the whole thing is a tempest in a teapot, Neither one is actually, the, 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 the consequences of either action or inaction are not going to result in mortal peril to either, to either group of Jews. Then what should the halacha be, he says? No pikuach nefesh is involved. So now, you might, so now he says, in his opinion, what would happen now is that the haskama would be neutral, morally neutral. It would be permissible, but not mandatory. Why? How does he frame that conclusion? So he says... The, one of the reasons for the boycott was not one of the reasons was Pikuach Nefesh, which we're discounting now. The other reason was vengeance against the Pope. The Pope behaved uh, abominably, and we need to avenge his murder of twenty-five Jews. Says Rabbi Sensino, in principle, that is that is really a correct point. That in general, re- taking revenge on the Pope would be a worthy uh, worthy goal. We've discussed in the past in other shiurim. Vengeance was seen as a very legitimate goal, that, 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 uh, that making non-Jews pay for killing Jews, usually on the private citizen level, uh, avenging murders, punishing murderers, was considered a noble goal. It was considered uh, halakhically imperative to uh, maintain deterrence against crime, for crime against Jews. It was considered uh, the Indian of Gaul Hadam, and so on. So vengeance is, uh, vengeance is a Jewish value. Taking revenge against uh, outrages and insults to the Jewish people is, is a wholly legitimate and, uh, and correct goal, he says. However, it doesn't apply over here. Why not, he says. 
Why is there no mitzvah to avenge the murder of 25 Portuguese conversos? The Ibn Lev, I, I, I have on the handout briefly at the end, Rabbi Yosef Ibn Lev, who actually supported the boycott, he actually was much more sympathetic to the, to the, Jew, to the, to, to the boycott, to the, and he felt the Jews in Ancona should be avenged. He refers to them as the people who wanted to make the boycott, Asher Kanu Kina Gedola, that they, they, they were outraged at the fate of the Anashim Tzadikim, the, the Tzadikim, the martyrs in, in Ancona who were murdered, Nafshim Tzur, Bitzar Hachayim, that he considers them Tzadikim and Kedoshim. Rabbi Shua Sansino is not so impressed. He does not think that they are such Tzadikim who should be avenged. Why not? He makes a very uh, provocative and somewhat troubling argument. He says, it's their fault, they were reckless. He says, the conversos from Portugal who had left Portugal, had gotten out, and were starting life anew. He says, they were, it's true, they were that's the standard term for Jews who were returning to the fold after embracing Christianity. It's good that they were accepting to accept that's Moshe of Yehudas, he says, but it was reckless and foolish of them to, to establish residence in what he calls in the lands of the non-Jews. When he says lands of the non-Jews, he obviously doesn't mean they should have all moved to Israel. There was no Israel then. Uh, there, there, there were no lands of the Jews back then. What he means, I think, is that they should have moved to Islamic lands. They should have moved to Turkey, to, to the Balkans, to Greece, to the, to the Middle East. They should have moved to Islamic lands, where, they would be, where the, the Islam, of course, couldn't care less if he, they had converted to Christianity. He's moving to what he calls Arts which I think he means Christendom. That was a reckless and foolish thing to do. He says, yes, it's true, the popes had made all kinds of promises that they would be allowed to live in peace as Jews, he says. He says, come on, don't be naive, he says. Everyone knows, Milsa Brurum Ufer Semes, that any Bendas, anyone with any brains, he says, knows that they're not going to do that. They're not going to live up to their word, he says. They're eventually going to take revenge on the Jews for renouncing Christianity. It's their fault, he says. The Jews who made the foolish decision to settle in, after becoming conversos, to, to, to settle in a Christian country, in a papal state, no less, inud afsidu anafshayu, they brought the harm upon themselves. Va'ovdu atzam ladas. Shockingly strong words. That's the term we use for suicide. They destroyed themselves, therefore there is no need to avenge them. Furthermore, he says, if it were up to me, I would pass a cheyrim, that anyone who was a converso in Portugal, anyone who then tries to establish residence under any uh, sraro, duki, any type of Christian, uh, Christian ruler, he says, that uh, I would ban such a practice, he says, even with all the promises they make, he says, the promises are worthless, he says, that they're in, they may make fine promises uh, outwardly, but inwardly they're plotting their doom, and when they have the chance, they're going to they're take out their wrath on them. And even if you find, uh, you find a duke or someone who's going to keep his word, he says, there's no guarantee for his children, which is what happened with the pope. The, the next pope had, had reversed the policy of the previous popes. Who knows what they'll do, he says. Therefore, these people, they, they were reckless. They brought the, their doom upon themselves. And therefore, since they were reckless, we have no need to mourn them, he says, and we have no need to avenge them. Where on earth does he get such a uh, remarkable conclusion from? He gets it from a Gemara in Moed Katan. The Gemara in Moed Katan says that it, it, brings, it brings a story, the, it brings a story that the Shvar Malka, Shvar Malka was King Shapur, was some kind of Persian king. He once told Shmuel, he was apparently friendly with uh, the Amara Shmuel, he once told Shmuel 
Tasili, I deserve blessing, I deserve reward, because I didn't kill, I never killed Jews. Kind of a low bar for success here, that, uh, that we're not, he, he didn't, by, not a very high standard, but at least not by our lights, but Tasili, I deserve credit and blessing, I never killed any Jews. So the Gemara says, really, he never killed any Jews? We have a different story, that uh, they once told Shmuel that Shvarmalka killed 12,000 Jews, and Shmuel didn't tear Kriya. Now, he, now, he, now this guy claims he never killed Jews. So the Mara says, yeah, but it was their fault, because they rebelled against him. The, the, the 12,000 Jews he killed, they were rebels. They had rebelled against Shvarmalka. Yeah, so he killed them. That, yeah, that's fine. He, he, can still, he, can still, he can still claim credit for never killing Jews. I never killed innocent Jews. I never killed Jews who were loyal subjects. I killed 12,000 Jews who rebelled against me. I never killed good Jews. So, what do you see from the story? Says Rabbi Yeshua Sansino, you see from the story, and Shmuel was his friend. Shmuel remained friends with Shvarmalka. Shmuel should have broken off the relationship. Shmuel should have left the country and plotted revenge like the pro-boycott people want to do. Why didn't Shmuel do that? Shmuel understood. They were rebels. They deserved it. They were... I don't know if he didn't feel bad for them, but, uh, but I'll call upon him. He did not feel that he had to have any hard, no hard feelings was his attitude towards Shvarmalka. You're the king. You're just doing what kings do. Shmuel could continue to be friendly with Shvarmalka because these people got what was coming to them. Blame the victim. Says Rabbi Yeshua Sansino, the same thing applies to these Jews in uh, these Jews in these Portuguese conversos in Ancona. They got what was coming to them because they were reckless. The the, the dimion, the, 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 the parallel is uh, is stunning. Rebelling against the king is one thing. The, the poor Jews had been promised by the Pope that, that, that they had been forced to convert by, uh, illegitimately in Portugal. And the Pope recognized that and said, all right, now you, can go back to being, uh, now you can go back to being Jews. The second Pope betrayed them and went back on his promises. These Jews are, being, are, are the equivalent of rebels against the king. It's a, uh, it's a, it's, it seems to be a very, uh, a very weak parallel. Nevertheless, this is the position of Rabbi Sansino. He says that we don't need to take revenge against these Jews because it was their recklessness. They should have been uh, more cynical. They should have been a lot more distrustful of promises of, of Christian kings and dukes and popes. And therefore, it's their fault. And therefore, there is no need to avenge them. And therefore, he says, once again, the boycott or no boycott is a matter of rishus. On this Chalukah, where nobody's really in danger, then there's no uh, major imperative for or against the boycott. Yes, they, you know, there might be a mitzvah to avenge them, but on the other hand, uh, it's their fault. So, Mela, it's basically neutral. The, these things cancel out, and there is no need, there's no mitzvah to avenge them. Furthermore, he says, you think the people in Urbino are such tadikim, he says, they did something even more terrible. What did they do? And this paragraph also I find baffling. He says, what do they do in Urbino? He says, the brother of the duke got together with some people of the city. They took a Sefer Torah out of the Aron, they did, they did a basically an anti-Semitic uh, act of vandalism and of uh, disrespect for the Sefer Torah. They took the Sefer Torah out of the shul, they, they, they tore it, they took something, I can't make out the word, they wrapped it up in the, in the, in the mantle of the Sefer Torah, they stuck it in the hechel. This is the most uh, disrespectful, obscene thing they could have done to the Jews and to Judaism. Everyone honors the Sefer Torah and they did this terrible thing. And what, what happened in Ancona, at least they can justify. 
what the, the, the church has cracked down on the conversos, at least that, that was justified. These Jews had backslid and rejected the Christianity after accepting it. What they did here was an outrage, it was unconscionable, it was purely malicious to be Mavaze Hamon Yisrael. And my chazis, he says, what, what makes you think that it's, that it's a better idea to redirect trade away from Ancona to Pizarro to, uh, to take revenge on, on Ancona? Pizarro is just as worthy of being boycotted, uh, it's even worse, than Ancona. I, I can't fathom what he's saying here. Again, maybe they had some religious justification, but look at what they did. In Ancona, they murdered 25 Jews by barbarically killing them, burning them. Hanged one of them, they burned two, a couple of dozen that's not worse than being Mavazah Sefer Torah. We, we, we should be more concerned about acts of vandalism against the Sefer Torah than about the judicial torture and murder of 25 Jews. I don't know, that's what he says. He says the, what they did in Pizarro was, was worse in a certain sense. Is he really so concerned about avenging bad behavior against uh, anti-Semitic acts, anti-Jewish acts? You should be more, just as concerned or more concerned about the bad behavior of the, of the Goyim in uh, Pizarro. All right. Furthermore, he says, even if you're going to say there's no danger in Ancona, but who knows, things change, the, the things can burst into flame later, he says, and even if it's only a remote suffix, Chamir Sakanta Meisura, again, that argument can apply in, in Pizarro as well, so you think that's a wash, but I guess then you go back, if there's danger in both places, then you say, Sheval Tasa Adif, and once again, uh, once again, don't do anything. So the first three Chalukas, he says, on the first two chalukos, the boycott is Osir. If it will endanger Ancona, it's Osir. Even if it will also endanger Pizarro, not doing it will endanger Pizarro, certainly if Pizarro is in no danger. So if Ancona is in danger, the boycott is absolutely Osir. If nobody's in danger, then the boycott is Rishus. Finally, he says, the last chaluka, chaluka number three in his initial list, if Pizarro is correct that they will be in danger from the Duke if there's no boycott, and Ancona is wrong that they will not be in danger if there is a boycott, then, on that possibility, Pizarro would win. So again, the same way Ancona, you take for granted they win if there's danger to them and not to Pizarro. The reverse is also true. If Pizarro's in danger and Ancona's not in danger, then Pizarro wins. Fine. So that's the end of the four Chalukas. So we have two Chalukas in which the boycott is Usser. If Ancona's in danger, regardless of whether Pizarro's in danger, the boycott is Usser. If Pizarro is in danger and Ancona's not in danger then the boycott is achiyuv, you, you should do the boycott, you must do the boycott to save Pizarro. If nobody's in danger, then the boycott is a matter of rishus, optional, any city that wants can participate, not participate. Those are the four chalukas. On two chalukas, the boycott is Osir. On one chalukah, the boycott is mechiyuv. On the fourth chalukah, the boycott is neutral, a matter of rishus. Now, with all that uh, background, now what should we do? We don't know which of these four chalukas is true. There's, we don't have the Orem Vitumim. There's no way to know exactly how the Pope will react. There's no way to know exactly how the Duke will react. What should we do, given that we don't know what anybody will, will do? Says Rabbi Sancino, Mihuzev Ezehu, Asherim Lenulibo, Bedavar, Shabarov Hatzdadim, Machaivim Shlola Sosa. Most of the Tzadim, a plurality at least, two out of, uh, two out of four. Two out of four Chalukos, the boycott is Osir. We're Machayiv not to enact the boycott. One chalukah you mechayiv to, one chalukah it's neutral, but two out of four of the boycott is absolutely osir, he says. So how can anyone think, given that we don't know the truth, that how can anyone think we should do a boycott when, when on two out of the four chalukahs, the boycott is absolutely osir? Again, this assumes that all the chalukahs are equal, that we treat them all as being roughly equal. That's what he says. 
given that we don't know and we have to we have to assign everything more or less an equal probability both sides of both propositions have to be given equal weight therefore he says it's pashut that given the doubt Sheval Tase, we should certainly not do the boycott if it's Osir on two out of the four Chalukos and Sheval Tasad. Now he says, I know he says, some of the pro-boycott people, they simply don't believe the people in Ancona. They think they're lying and they think they're unscrupulous and scoundrels and they don't trust them, he says. I don't, I don't think that's the right way to go, he says. Every Jew has a Cheskas Kashrus. We shouldn't uh, dismiss out of hand any Jew's claim. Everyone, we should consider, therefore, more or less equally the claims of the, of the two factions. And therefore, we have the analysis he's made that given that we don't know, we have to say that the, the boycott is wrong. Furthermore, he says, he argues based on, based on people that he trusts, certain specific uh, reports that he heard, that the people in Pizarro are actually wrong, that they're not actually in danger. He trusts people about the, what he heard from them. So at the end of the day, he says he is not convinced that this boycott is legitimate. On the contrary, given the uncertainties that we currently have, he thinks it's pushed that the boycott is wrong. And that's why he concludes in the last paragraph, We will remain in this position, in, in this default posture of Sheval Tasa, of rejecting the boycott, until... Until we find out more, until we find out Amita Sainian, what the true political uh, the true political situation based on people who are smuchim. He he was not quite on the scene. He was, I think, in Constantinople at the time. We need to find, we need to find we need to find people who will give us a uh, reliable account, local people, people who are smuchim Sahim. Who are these people who would be local uh, local witnesses who would can be relied upon to tell us what what what's what the truth is? At Tile Venice. The elites of Venice, he says, Uparvaha, and the, the surroundings of Venice, Chachamea, the Chacham in Venice, they're, they're close to the, they're in Italy, they're, they're close to the, they, they understand the complex political intrigues of Renaissance Italy, and they're the ones who we, who we can rely on to give us the, the truth. In particular, he says, who do I really want to hear from? Prat Meharav HaGadol, the great rabbi, Zakein Nesupanim, the elder, the one who's uh, highly regarded, Yirei Elohim, God-fearing, Rabbi Meir. I believe this would be a reference to Rameir Katznellenbogen, typically known as Maram Padua. He was actually German, but he was uh, he, he he had he lived in Padua, Padua, and he uh, and he was he had some connection to Venice. He was apparently considered by European rabbis as the Av Bastin or the chief rabbi of Venice. So I want to hear from him. He says that he's considered uh, he he he's someone I would rely on to tell me the truth about what's going on in Ancona and uh, Pizarro. And he says, I tried to send messages out. I, uh, I tried to have the people who are involved to send uh, messages to, uh, to the Marampadua and to other Chacham there, he says. They wouldn't listen, they said. They said, some things are too dangerous to put into writing. Hadvarim lo kasif. We can't write this down. It's just uh, these types of political intrigues. I guess if we're caught with these types of papers by the wrong people, who knows, uh, knows what will happen to us. I don't know why they couldn't convey an oral message. I guess nobody would trust them to have accurately conveyed oral messages. So Alevia Day says, I don't even know if they're just, if they're just uh, this is a song going to dance because they don't want to contact Venice because they know that they're not going to get the answer they want. I don't even know what's going on at this point, he says. Bochein libos v'klayos, alakim sad, the kitim b'libenu 
So the bottom line is, he says, he hasn't yet gotten a, uh, an, inside, uh, an, an insider's opinion from the local Chachamim. From what he's heard, given the uncertainties that he's forced to grapple with, he thinks that the, both sides potentially have merit. And the bottom line is, Sheh Valtasi says, since there are, in two out of the four Chalukos, if Ancona's in any danger, even if Pizarro's also in danger, then because of the rule of my who says your blood is redder, we should do nothing. And even though we don't know, he says, and we don't know, so that's what we should do. Our posture should be until we find out more, until we can actually confirm that the, the truth lies more with Pizarro than Ancona, un, unless and until we reach that position. This was his position in the initial tshuva, that the boycott was not justified and would actually be usher. That was his stance in the initial tshuva. Again, as I mentioned, he has a longer tshuva. The next tshuva is even longer. There's a great deal more that, to be said on the subject, but we will stop here tonight. This is the, the first classic tshuva there will be a Shua, Shua Sancino wrote on the controversy of the Ancona boycott.